Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 50. I'm Jamie Berger, and my guest today uh, in part one of a two-episode conversation is Michael Ian Black. I'll talk more about Mr. Black in a little bit, but those of you who listen to this show know that I tend to let the conversations bring up political and social issues of the day that are important to me. But today, I don't think I can do that, and so let's just see how it goes. This is the first episode I'll have recorded since the Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. revelations, and all the other ones as well. But I'm going to focus on those two because the entertainment world is what I'm thinking about in terms of sexual harassment, assault, rape, rape culture. And there's some stuff that I just don't feel that I hear enough of out in the world. And there are some lessons I've learned about how to speak as a 53-year-old straight white man. Well, let me qualify that. On Twitter, I've been corrected by some people who have made it clear that I'm not white, being of Jewish descent. You might guess that those are hateful, racist, anti-Semitic people. To which I sometimes point out that I'm a lot whiter than baby Jesus was, but and then the, the conversation just seems to deteriorate from there. Point is, I'm a 53-year-old white guy to most people. And for the past year or so, and in my episode uh, with Andy Zeisler, I went on at great detail. If I think about it now, I can imagine her sitting there just kind of sighing. Uh, I went on uh, in great detail talking about how I think men should shut up more, especially men of my particular demographic should shut up more and listen uh, for a while because I was seeing a lot of men on social media giving women and everyone the, yes, I agree with you and here's how you need to say it better treatment. And it was getting very frustrating. But as I've gone on through the year, I've realized that just shutting up is not enough. And it's not what most women, people of color, LGBTQ people, it's not what most of them want for an ally in the long run. Just silence and clicking like. And so I've been trying. I've been trying to listen. Two great writers on the internet have, have both given me a hard time and given me advice. And both of them started with listen. Just spend some time and listen. As much as I've been raised not to, there are times when I've responded with a blanket apology for all men, which is completely facile and bullshit and only serves to make the apologizer feel better about himself. And I've been called out on it and apologized immediately. Yep, they're right. I have also once or twice been guilty of being frustrated at being lumped in with all of the worst <laughs> humanity, which is the worst men, and have responded, in effect, with something along the lines of the hashtag, not all men, which is also bullshit. Why is that bullshit? Because it doesn't matter that I'm not all men. And that's what I'd like to talk about. What matters is how we good guys are all men. <laughs> 
or how we should reflect on our responsibility and maybe see what we can do about it. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, my friend John Hodgman, also the guest of episode one of this podcast, without whom I would have continued procrastinating for the two or so years I procrastinated before starting this. So thank you once again, John, even though I doubt you're going to listen to this. Because you know what? Most of the people I know who make art, they spend the time making the art, not listening to podcasts. I used to resent it. But they're busy. They're making their shit. I digress. John, who is a, has a big part of his heart and a home here in Western Massachusetts, came back to do a show at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls. He's uh, doing a show to, and it's not exactly, I, I wanted to say doing a reading, but it's not. He's doing a show that's going along with his new book called Vacation Land, which, unlike his other books, is a touching, memoirish bunch of essays about, well, ostensibly about New England and Maine, but also touching on cultural issues, and it's funny, and it's poignant, and it's political in all the best ways. And John came back and did this performance and conversation with area DJ and wise-ass and do-gooder Monty Belmonte. Pretty much had a conversation for an hour and a half. And then there was the Q&A. And during the Q&A, a young man got up. I don't know if he's young. He's younger than I was. Maybe 30. Bearded. Earnest. It was the day after Louis, and the guy got up and said, in effect, there have been some great disappointments from artists among blah, blah, blah lately. Is there anyone you've ever been disappointed by? And I just wanted to scream, and the guy started to, cut, to go on, and John cut him off and said, you're asking about Louis, right? And he went on to address it earnestly and well. Meanwhile, I was kind of sitting there fuming. Sure, we're all angry. It's been a fuck of a year. We all are just furious. And if we can't take down Trump, we're going to sure be self-righteous when one of our own turns out to be a monster. And this guy either wanted more of that from John or wanted some other name that he could throw under the bus. I don't know. It just, it just felt awful to me. But it also felt like, Jamie, what have you been doing or saying about any of this besides being indignant about the famous people who are awful? And so here goes. In one of zillions of articles I've read since Weinstein and Louis, most of them by women. This one happens to be by a man. And if you're interested, see the show notes for a bunch of links to what I think are the most valuable pieces of writing in the past couple weeks. His name is Damon Young, and he was writing on the Very Smart Brothers website. And the title of the article was, How, If You're a Man, To Deal With the Fact That You're Probably Trash. And I thought, okay, this is, this is interesting. And here's one of the, here's a little bit of it. He writes, It's not having your feelings fucking hurt and pouting when called trash. Trash is just a word to encapsulate a range of selfish, destructive, and oblivious behaviors. Behaviors that we've come to accept as male birthrights. 
even going so far as half-jokingly calling ourselves and allowing ourselves to be referred to as dogs. It's recognizing that there's no distinction between men are dogs and men are trash. One has a less negative connotation and is more likely to be embraced, but they describe the exact same behavior. It's accepting that those selfish, destructive, and oblivious acts aren't inherently male. They're inherently trash. And he goes on to say that this is the trash that all men are a part of and need to take responsibility for. And when I finished it, I thought it was well-written and interesting, but I did feel that, once again, it was along the lines of all men, but... Not all men, as in not me, because the author himself wasn't taking any personal responsibility. And that's what I'm slowly leading up to here. Well, the article had 1,019 replies, one of which was from a woman, at least her avatar was of a drawing of a black woman, whose screen name was Wild Cougar, who wrote, I'm a man and I'm trash, keeps you in a superior position. You're the bad guy who acts. You're the agent. You have the power. You are the center of the discussion. Look at you flogging yourself. You can decide not to be trash. But it's all about you and your agency, and you create reality. Right now, reality is the spectacle of you calling yourself trash. No status quo change needed in the narcissistic shame in the narcissistic shame show. Status quo change would require that you first shut the fuck up. Which takes me back to me and thinking men should shut the fuck up. And both her point and his article are well taken, but they just aren't enough. I am the proud child of a 70s feminist. People like my father were my age then, and they struggled. They struggled with the fact that women were telling them that they had oppressed them for centuries and were telling them things like on a day-to-day basis, don't hold the fucking door for me, you pig, which was very confusing. And that's a very innocuous example. But not all, but many men like my father changed and learned. And society, its treatment towards women, improved. It still sucks, but it improved. And this moment can lead to similar improvement. But not if we just spend time being indignant about the famous people getting in trouble. So after that night, when I reflected on how annoyed I was by that kid who got up and wanted more dirt on someone being a horrible man, I thought, well, I have to start with me, just like Michael Jackson would say. If I was raised and believe everything that I was raised to be true as a child of of that feminist, and if you want to read more about that, I wrote a show called, an essay called Peep Show. I think it's kind of valid these days in that it was a coming to terms with my own lifelong, what's the word, used to be obsession, interest, fascination with strippers and peep shows and all of that juxtaposed with my mother's feminism and believing in that. I'll put a link in the show notes. But if I'm Mr. Conscious, how can I A, help other people do so, and B, reckon with my own shit? And so I started thinking about what have I done 
I've never assaulted anyone or anything like it. But what have I done that enables this culture? And the most recent thing that, that immediately came to mind was about um, four or five years ago when late one night on Facebook, someone who I thought of as a fairly new friend, we'd had some in-depth discussions in real life. She had posted a new profile picture. It wasn't a body shot. It wasn't anything inherently sexy, but it was sexy to me. And I immediately and without thought wrote her and where I either she's not on Facebook anymore or we're not friends anymore. I don't remember how it all went down. So I can't find the conversation. But I wrote something to the effect of that picture is painfully hot. And she replied. And I'm not going to try to paraphrase because it wouldn't be fair. But it was to the effect of calling me to task for doing something really inappropriate that made her feel really uncomfortable. And so far, I'm not damning myself too much. I misinterpreted a relationship with someone I didn't know well enough to make that interpretation of. But where I damn myself is how I responded, which was, as you might now guess, defensively. I thought we were friends. I was being complimentary. I'm not your boss or your teacher. I don't hold any power over you, blah, blah, blah. Kind of a classic self-righteous, I'm one of the good guys. I couldn't possibly have done anything that would be hurtful. And I think she responded once more, and then that was the end of that. But I do know that she didn't block or unfriend me then. Because a few weeks later, something that had been starting to bother me in a, in a work relationship was really coming to a head. And in a very innocuous version of, of gaslighting, I felt like I was in, in a... In a in a work relationship, the hysterical wife who was just being crazy and shouldn't be listened to because he's emotional and overreacting. And somehow that made me think back to that night and that picture and my response. And so I wrote her a very short, that's important. I'm not, I didn't explain in detail or ask for forgiveness. I just wrote a short apology saying that something happened to me and I understand and you are right and I am sorry. I remember she responded very briefly with something like, thank you, and that was the end of that. Inevitably, there are going to be people who just heard that and think, oh, good for you, aren't you the hero, the nice guy? But that's really not the point I'm trying to make or why I think this is important. Why is this important? Because it isn't just good guys and scumbags. It's not just we good men versus Louis and Weinstein. And if we just root them all out, the world will be fixed. It's important because if we really want it to be fixed, we all have to reckon with our own, even tiny demons, or not so tiny. I'm not saying everyone can get on the air or write something or needs to write something about every little thing they've done that, that contributed to rape culture or that didn't help prevent it. And I realize I'm in a privileged position among many privileged positions in that I'm not going to lose a job 
a marriage or anything like that based on this little 20 minutes. I don't even have kids who might listen to it and be disappointed in me. It's just that so many of the articles I see and advice I hear on how to be better men is to the effect of, next time you hear someone saying something bad, step up. Well, damn it, that just doesn't happen that often. Not in my life. I think much more important is either you don't have to publicly do it, but reckon with your own shit, men. And I hope more of us will publicly do it without being caught first. We'll step up and own up and figure out how to do better. The society won't change by us all just yelling at celebrities. And fellow middle-aged, white, straight men. I don't think it'll improve in the short term with us just shutting up and clicking like either. Okay, friends, this is twice as long as I'd hoped it would be, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. This episode has to get to my engineer tonight. I really should have someone listen to that long diatribe besides me, but I'm not going to. And if anybody liked it at all, I'm going to talk about some more stuff before part two next week. But for now, my guest on this, the 50th episode of 15 Minutes, is Michael Ian Black. Actor, author, stand-up comedian, tweeter extraordinaire, and host of the How to Be Amazing podcast. We talk about everything from our moms to Twitter to his decades-long love feud with Mark Marin, and much, much more. We recorded way back on August 31st via Skype, so you won't hear anything about Harvey Weinstein or Louis C.K. for the rest of the hour. Hello, Michael Ian Black. Hello. I want to start by saying condolences for your mom. Oh, thank you. It'll be nine years since my mom died. And uh, after finishing the book, after, you know, after hearing that, uh, it seems like they were uh, similar influences on us. I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know the strength of her influence entirely, but... Uh, since she died, I feel like it's becoming clearer to me and, uh, and, uh, the, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a confusing and complex thing to go through losing a parent. I lost my dad when I was 12 and now my mom just died. And, uh, the differences, the differences between those two experiences are, are fairly stark and, uh, both because of my relationships with those different parents and also just the time in my life, uh, between being a 12 year old and being a 45 year old, uh, just very different experiences and, um, unsettling in different ways and, uh, and complex in different ways. 
I think I remember you talking to someone about how you were just coming to have a relationship with your dad when he died, but it sounds yeah. like you've had a, a very close one with your mom since then. Uh, you know, our, they're just, they're just some kind of funny, uh, commonalities. And you know, my mother wasn't a lesbian, but she became divorced and only had lesbian friends the rest of her life who tried to seduce her, uh, for most of my young adult life. Well, she was probably gay and just didn't tell you. No, she really wasn't. I mean, her, her friends and I, I mean, I would be all for setting her up with them. And the, another parallel is that at one point she did slip that she didn't think I was gay, but that <laughs> it, it would have been more comfortable for her. Uh, it, it would have been easier as a feminist. Well, my mom definitely thought I was gay in the early part of my life and uh, uh, sat me down to tell me so. And for her, it was the opposite. She didn't want me to be gay. She really was worried that I was gay, not because she thought that uh, it would make my life so much more difficult. Um, and at the time, this is the mid 80s when she thought that, uh, you know, AIDS was really at its apex in terms of a health crisis. And in addition to the homophobia and everything else, she just really was concerned um, that I was gay and 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 supportive in in the sense that you know she said I'll I'll still love you and I mean this is from my gay mom saying she'll still love me if I'm gay. Um, as it happens, I'm not. And 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 at the time, I knew I was not. To give my mom credit, I don't think she wanted me to have any of the 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 trials and burdens of of struggling as a gay person. And I'm about maybe seven years older than you are. And it was pre AIDS crisis. Uh, and there was just a moment when I was like, mom, for me, my mom was that person. I, I wanted you know the attention and praise from first and foremost uh, in my life. And when you, in the beginning of, um, of navel gazing and at the end, talk about her, write about her, um, saying she wasted her life. And initially <laughs> you felt a little pang, you know, somewhat comical, but a little pang of what do you, what the fuck you made this. <laughs> um, there is some of that. Uh, you know, I, my mom also, you know, she, she wasn't a professor, but she was an adjunct her whole life. And she took a huge, you know, and she started really late because of me. And so I was a big thing that she was very involved in, in the success of. And there are times when I wish, she had lived a little longer to see me do more stuff because she's my first audience, let's say. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I just, I was wondering whether that was important to you and whether she appreciated what you did, whether she read this book. She did read the book, Naval Gazing. Um, I couldn't have published it without her. Well, first of all, I interviewed her for the book. So she, she was aware of the book and I, I couldn't, uh, in good conscience, publish it without her reading it. It didn't necessarily mean I would change anything, but I wanted her to be aware of what was in it. She really didn't have any objections to it. Um, although I felt, although I felt a sense of urgency in terms of her health, her fading health, it was unclear at the time that I was writing it and when it was published, um, that her death was imminent in any way because she had been kind of dying for 15, 16 years at that point. I mean, she, she was in slow decline 
ever since a cancer diagnosis uh, in 1999 or 2000. And there had been a number of, I don't want to say false alarms, but a number of times where we thought, oh, this, this, this could get really bad. And so having survived many of those, I think I felt like um, I want to do this now. I want to write this book now and I want to interview her now, but I don't necessarily think I'm racing the clock here. And as it turns out, I wasn't. I mean, that whole process of of conceiving the book, writing it and publishing it was probably three years. Um, and then the book was out for another year, maybe before she finally died. It was important for me to um, not so much to get her story out there, although I think she has a compelling story. It was important for me to just work with her and work on these interviews together. And I don't know why, just because she's my mom and I wanted her to, I wanted to have that connection. When you were doing Stella in the State, your deepest, most loyal fan base seems to me to be those those people who just really have stuck with you. I'm a new fan, and, and it's mostly started with the podcast. And you have become my most clear idea of what I'd like the show to be, in that you're always you, and you have... you you. Going from Katy Perry to Cecile Richards to Doug Stanhope... It, and you do it really well, and there's enough of you, and there's enough of you just letting them be them. And that that's kind of, I think it's a great show. And so I just wanted to say that. Thanks. I appreciate that very much. And you also seem, as compared to some people, either you or you have someone good working with you, you do your fucking homework. And that's something that frustrates me about other people sometimes, you know? Uh and I'll get to later on. I'll, maybe I'll bring up one particular. Uh, I, I'm not going to badmouth anybody except for myself in this interview. Although I might badmouth Mark Maron just just because, just because, no reason. Right, and I know you two both seem to enjoy it, <laughs> and I have. It may be like because I'm brand new to to the drama. I only learned it all and listened to all the the historical documents uh, this past week. I am super fascinated and i think your two interviews are amazing <laughs> radio so later i will tell you my theory and if afterwards you're like i don't want this in there I always oh well, that's that nice i uh i would never ask you not to include something that i said in an interview because i'm i'm uh i'm i'm mindful of that unless i just say something incorrect at this point sorry this is jamie cutting in three months later at this point, Michael and I started talking about politics, and I did a lot of yammering on, which I think you've had enough of at the beginning of the show today. At least I've had enough of. And so I'm just telling you here, we started in and we ended up talking about his very, very active wars against MAGA Trump scumbag trolls on Twitter that he engages in every single day and how and why he does that. I've thought a lot about this issue and I have uh, exerted a great amount of effort on this issue on Twitter and decided ultimately, not even ultimately, decided right away that it was impossible to 
not take a position uh, against this person because as, uh, well, as an American, but also as a Jew, I just feel a special responsibility to stand up for minorities and people who are maybe being scapegoated. So during the campaign, that was Muslims and that was Mexicans and that was whomever uh, was being targeted that particular day. And uh, since the election, that now means gay people and it means Jews, unfortunately, and it means African-Americans. It means women. It means, you know, standing up essentially for everybody. And it's uh, it's exhausting. Um, but I also think it's necessary. So I become a much less funny person, uh, on Twitter and maybe in my life because so much of my brain is devoted to trying to, 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 to speak out. And in terms of like feeling physically threatened, I have not felt that way. Although I think like a lot of prominent people on social media, um, I've received, threats, uh, implicit and explicit. Um, and my wife was concerned about it, but I just, and she really wanted me to stop. And I did, um, sort of modify the way I interacted online and we got into fights about it. And I think that was, that was, that's the intent of this kind of harassment is to divide. Um, but Ultimately, you know, I tried to explain this to her, like, it's not really possible for me to stop. Uh, It's not really possible for me to silence myself on these issues because I feel a responsibility and the responsibility is greater than than myself um, because because of just because of culturally where I come from. I've never felt more, I mean, I was, I'm certainly a Pratheist child of atheists, <laughs> uh, Pratheist being your term. Uh, I've never felt more Jewish. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in my book, I describe Pratheism as uh, uh, something like praying to a God I don't believe in. Uh, and if... I ever hear a response, I'll deny that it ever happened. Something like, that. Uh, you know, the, the the idea of being torn between atheism, theism, and agnosticism, and not really knowing where you fall on that scale, um, but being unwilling to commit to to any of them. Uh, that's sort of how I feel. And, and and the Judaism component of it, I think, like a lot of Jews, it's. Uh, it's cultural, you know, as much as anything, or maybe more than anything. It's, it, it is a cultural identif- identifier, and uh, maybe that identifier means a, a host of things to different people. But I think one thing Jews all share in common is a historical memory of very recent events that preclude us from sitting idly by while people are being persecuted. It's just not possible. It's not possible. And I also feel much more like I live in a, in a in a rural Western Massachusetts town, so you, there will be you know more. There are more Trump voters in my midst. There are more acquaintances who are, and I feel more Jewish to them as well. Changing to a much lighter topic, the Katy Perry episode. Was there a, a different feeling in talking to her, or was she just a, a, a human being? Um, there was a different feel for a variety of reasons. 
part of it was that it was on her turf. Um, it was in LA at a, uh, kind of manufactured pseudo, uh, environment that she was doing marketing for her album out of. So, and it was all very organized and, and very, um, handled in a way that made me uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, when I talked to her, she was lovely. I mean, she's, you know, she, she's a very pleasant person. Um, but there was definitely a performative aspect of that interview that I was trying to break through. Uh, and it wasn't easy. And I don't know that I succeeded either. And which you generally do very well with. When I started to listen to the beginning of, and this is just getting too inside podcast baseball, but Cecile Richards, I was like, wow, that, that is just a, that I, I was, I was afraid that your, you know, uh, all the words people use to describe you that I've heard you have conversations with Pete Holmes, with Mark, you know, be, uh, being sarcastic or whatever. You didn't turn it off. And you didn't turn off the funny because this is a serious guest. And it worked. Well, that's nice. Thanks. Well, I was nervous about speaking with her because I didn't know how uh, serious, she, whether she would be, whether she would be. Right. Um, you know, sometimes with political people in particular, they come in with an agenda, which isn't a bad thing, by the way. I'm not saying that's, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they have an agenda. Um, and sometimes that agenda can get in the way of their just personality. And she wasn't like that at all. She was very um, down home is how I would describe her. She's from Texas and, and was game, which was great, which was good. It made, it, it made my job a lot easier. Oh, why is this show called How to Be Amazing? Because uh, when my producers and I were conceiving of the show, we wanted to talk to people about their creative process and uh, we didn't know what to call it. And when we were um, in the early stages of it, we went to see Ira Glass uh, just to get his advice on how to do podcasts. Um, and we described the show to him and he said, uh, do you have a title for it? And I think at the time we were kind of calling it Backstory. And he goes, oh, that's a terrible title. Uh, it really sounds more like a How to Be Amazing show. And I said, well, that's a good title. Can we use that? And he said, sure. Nice. He's very good at such things, and he's very willing to express his opinion. Uh, I was out. I actually happened to go out to dinner with him and some people after a show at uh, uh, in New York. And I told him about the podcast. And he was like, why would anybody want to listen to that? <laughs> <laughs> and since then, I've emailed him and tried to, like, I sent him the David Sedaris episode because it's someone he knows and likes. But he also was, like, so incredibly afraid of, talking about himself as famous and he said he hates interviewing famous people and so he's got a lot to say about fame oh i'm sure he does i think yes but he doesn't want to think it's interesting uh i was going to say to you if you're i i'm pretty sure you're one of three people who wouldn't claim not to be a degree of famous uh in the 45 or so so far but if you did i was going to say claim that you've played poker with star Jones on TV. So you are famous. Well, it would be, it would be disingenuous to, to say that I don't have any fame. Of course I do. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a lot, but, but it's some. Yeah, it's definitely some. 
<laughs> and uh, it's just funny how people want to run away from it. Well, I think there's a, I think the sense that people have, famous people have, is that it's, uh, that they're bragging or something. Say you're famous. The first person I ever met who expressed that, I, when I first got on TV, my very first real TV show was called The State on MTV. And after our first season, right, kind of right after we were breaking on TV, and this was in the early 90s when MTV really was a, a pretty powerful platform, um, we, uh, some friends and I from the state decided to leverage our new fame uh, into uh, sleeping with girls. And the way we did this was we, we got a van and we decided to travel across the country and, and stop at different college towns where there would be people who watched our show who would then want to sleep with us. In my case, it didn't work out very well at all. However, uh, one evening we were in Athens, Georgia, and uh, somebody pointed out that Michael Stipe was in the bar. And I don't even remember how we ended up talking, but he said to me and probably my friends who I was with, uh, are he goes, are you a TV star? And I go, no, no, no. Are you a rock star? And he goes, yeah. I was like, yeah, that's right. You are. And you're owning it. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I've had a couple of people talk to me about how, you know, even owning your, your local town fame, both, a, a great, um, solo talker, podcaster, radio guy, Hardy White, about being being famous in your own town for being in the band. Mm -hmm. Don't just go for it, man. And the other person was, uh, well, George Saunders was talking about the band he was in before he went to college. Oh, interesting. But satirical fame is something that you have, you're one of three people who I can think of who have spent time coming in and out of, you know, playing around with them. The other two are Hodgman, and as an all-around expert, and Neil Pollock, the writer, as the greatest and most macho American writer, yours takes it really to the level of extreme superficiality and that you're famous for being famous as, as your no, as a on-air personality person. Right. That, yeah, that all started with, um, the state when I was in, I was really interested and continue to be interested in, um, mythology and the kind of personas that people create for themselves. Um, the way they kind of want to present themselves to the world or the, the way they want the world to see them. And so I invented this character called the on-air personality. Initially, uh, it was just going to be me, Michael Ian Black. And I, and, and those pieces all begin with me going, hi, I'm an on-air personality. Initially they were written to be hi, I'm Michael Ian Black. And the other guys in the group and girl in the group were like, no, you can't do that because we don't, uh, we don't talk about ourselves that way. And so you can't do those pieces. And I'm like, well, what if I just change it to, hi, I'm an on-air personality. And they were like, fine. Um, and it was just this sort of, you know, conceited uh, persona that I then spent years kind of working on and with and through uh, to the point where I felt like it was becoming very constraining and confining. And I really needed to, to shed that. I still 
do it to some extent. I mean, my I, I my first two albums were one was called Very Famous and one was Notice Noted Expert because it's just funny to me. It's just funny to me. The the you know sometimes people will come up to me and say, "Are you famous?" and and the question itself is so ludicrous because if you have to ask the question, then the answer is obviously no, <laughs> no. Um, but at the same time, they clearly recognize you from something. So uh, my instinct now is to say yes. Yes, I'm very famous. <laughs> or I was at a restaurant the other day and the waitress said, said something like, how do I know you? And which is an, another annoying question because I have no idea other than she's, I'm sure she's seen me on TV. And so the only response I, I, I could muster was I'm a very famous television star or something like that. Uh, fortunately she laughed. <laughs> Good. Yes. It seems like in terms of what you do now, from what I've seen, I haven't, I, I didn't have the heart to go back and read a child's first book of Trump, because as a, your editor, you said recently about a, a follow-up book said, it's just not funny anymore. So someday I'll go read that, but I don't know what you're like as that person, but, uh, it seems like the only place you've kept it is in your standup. Yeah. And I still, I still do make those jokes in my standup. Um, I mean, it's clearly to me so self-deprecating. Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily always clear to the audience. Uh, I would hope, but, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm playing some comedy club in Spokane, Washington for 150 people. It would be absurd for me to talk about my level of fame as being anything other than modest. Recently, I interviewed a very young comic whose first album just came out, Josh Johnson. Nice guy. And I listened to a lot of his stuff. And the difference between his persona and himself was pretty, it was interesting because he wasn't not being himself on stage, but he, a lot of his material on stage, he played, I'm the, I'm the theater nerd, you know, and it, it was it, funny. But then as we were talking, he starts talking about the Conor McGregor, the big fight. And I don't know what he's talking about. And I almost called him out on it, but I didn't. But the only reason I bring that up is because I, is the mbop bit shtick? Is it or is it really true? Do you love mbop? I love it. No, <laughs> uh, I mean, not only do I love it, I think it's one of the best pop songs written in the last twenty-five years. I think it's fantastic. All right, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And sometimes people say when I'm doing a show, "Is there any particular music you'd like to come out to?" And when they ask the question, I always say mbop. There's always a pause, and then the person goes, seriously? Mm -hmm. They say, yes, seriously. Well, I'm sure one or two people out there who listen to this will be really psyched to hear that. Oh, probably three or four. Okay, but not, not five. <laughs> no, not five. Uh, but as many as four people will be like, I love Mbop too. Yes. This is for you, people. <laughs> Career question. You do so many different things. If you had to pick one of them to focus on for five years, acting, stand-up, writing memoir and, and other writing, uh, the podcast, if it could make you a full living, what, what would you pick? Well, I'd pick different things for different reasons. Uh, it's, hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to know. I mean, the thing, that, the, thing that I, the, the thing that maybe gives me the most pleasure right now, well, that's not even true. 
I don't know. I like them all. I like them all for different reasons. Um, you know, it would be great if I knew, for example, that I had an acting job for five years, uh, like on a network show where I didn't even really have to think it was just showing up, having, uh, you know, doing some scenes, having a free lunch, going home and collecting a fat paycheck. I would be very happy to do that for, for the next five years. Um, with, with, with the, with the, with the full knowledge that at the end of those five years, uh, I would then have enough money in the bank that I could go write a novel or devote myself to the podcast or do whatever. You mean uh, five years of being, as you put it uh, recently, number seven on the call list? Nothing better. I mean, I could take, I, I would go as high as number five, number four in a pinch, but that there's a sweet spot between like number five and number seven. That's just ideal. I was talking to, to um, Bobby Tisdale, who plays Zeke on Bob's Burgers, and he seems like that is a nice, sweet... I'm sure he'd like Bob, uh, Zeke to be a little bigger. Well, the nice thing about animation is you really... I mean, for those guys, they show up, they record it in, what, an afternoon or something. That I, I, would, be, I would be happy to be number one on that call sheet. Uh, but... Not in, not in any live action thing where you're in every scene and you're solving the crime. I don't want to solve the crime. It, I heard the word novel there. Yeah. Is that a, th is that a thing? Is there a, no is there a novel that's been in your, the back of your head? Is there a... Well, th th that is very much a bucket list thing for me. The, um, the, the reason I... I mean, I've always wanted to write a novel. I don't know that I'm capable of it. And... Uh, I would say writing the memoirs that I've written uh, are more or less, not more or less, but are, 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 are I look at them as, as a education and self-education in terms of like how to learn how to write with the idea that at some point it would be nice to apply that education to writing something uh, fictional. As someone who's been overschooled in writing, when I read you, and I would think you might have gone to graduate school for writing at one point. I know you didn't. Did you learn as a reader? I feel like maybe someone who's read a lot of Sedaris and had a really good editor and has good thoughts and has a general, you know, skill at writing. How have you learned how to, you know, you just started writing. Just like you said, when you were offered to do stand-up, you just did it. How did you write these books? Well, the first book I wrote was a collection of essays, sort of fictional, dumb essays, a lot of which were, I mean, and, and they all played around with, uh, voice and tone. Um, I think they were mostly first person. Um, and it was the last, I didn't want to write that book. Like when I, when I got a, uh, an offer to write a book, I was sort of like, I want to do anything except that. And the reason I didn't want to do that was because it felt like cheating to me because I felt like I knew how to write 500 to a thousand word dumb essays. Yeah. And a lot of funny people put out that book. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Ultimately what I realized was I, I kind of needed to, as a first step, as a kind of dipping my toe in the water, just to, I needed to, 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 to write in order to learn how to write. And so yeah. I felt like that was very much like my introduction, introduction to writing. Um, 
writing prose. I mean, I've been writing sketches and screenplays and whatever else. And then the next book was a memoir. I didn't want to write a memoir, um, but it was the same thing. It, it just felt like it, both because I needed to shed this persona that we talked about and because I needed to write something longer form that I could write. Um, it was kind of the only thing that it was possible for me to write. And so I wrote it. And then the, the book, the following book, that, that first memoir was about relationships, romantic relationships. And in writing that, I felt like I was sort of short shrifting, um, this other important relationship that I have in my life, which was with my mom. And so I sort of felt like I had to write that. Um, and now I don't feel like I have to write anything. And so I'm hoping that I can, I can take that knowledge and, and devote it to something entirely new. So you're, you're waiting for the muse to, I mean, I'm always, uh, I'm always in communication with the muse. Next week, we'll be back with part two of my conversation with Michael Ian Black, featuring everything from toe fungus to Mark Marin. You can find out whatever you want to know about Michael Ian Black by Googling his name. You can find all 50 episodes of 15 Minutes, including conversations with David Sedaris, George Saunders, Brooke Gladstone, Maeve Higgins, Eugene Merman, the list goes on by going to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's the numerals one and five minutes, J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Thank you for listening and for your support. Our engineer is the intrepid Ed Patnode, and our music is by Christian Kundari. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.